When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. this episode of the show we welcome back and jandrana for our annual preseason grouse and woodcock chat thanks for tuning in to episode number 190 All right, welcome to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. We've got a much-anticipated episode on today's show at a special time of year. Many of you have been patiently waiting for this, some of you impatiently waiting for this episode, and I appreciate everybody that let me know. We're going to talk to Anne in just a moment, but first I'm going to breeze through a few things. Once again, I am recording this all the way back on September 7th before I leave for my prairie trip so that... Even while I am away on my hunting trip, you all are going to get your Friday episode release of the Birdshot Podcast. I'm trying to be a bit more structured and organized this year. Stick to that release schedule. So far, so good. But hunting season's about to get started. We'll see how things play out. But at least for now, we're in good shape. So again, I'm going to be quick about this. But thank you to Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. Your continued support is greatly appreciated. All Patreon patrons are eligible for monthly giveaways, exclusive discounts, like the ones we've got for Gumleaf USA and Upland Institute. They get bonus content when that is available. And everybody gets a little welcome package with Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Don't forget anybody out there, rate, review, subscribe, like, share, follow, all those little things you can do with a quick few taps on a keyboard or your smartphone. They all help the Birdshot podcast. And I thank you for taking a moment to do that. 
Okay, I mentioned last week I was looking for questions for a birdshot version of the Justin McGrail Q&A, specifically with a hunting focus. If you got them, let's keep those coming in. I'll collect those for a while until I feel like we've got enough for an episode, and we'll get something scheduled with Justin. We can do a little Q&A, talk up an institute. Email me those questions, nick at birdshotpodcast.com. Okay, that's all I got. Hopefully when you're hearing this, I will be at the tail end of a very successful, enjoyable, relaxing first hunting trip of the season. I will have likely had my fill of the prairie by the time you hear this. And in very short order, I will be heading home just in time for the rough grouse opener in Minnesota and Wisconsin tomorrow, September 17th. Michigan will have already opened on the 15th. That's right, everyone. Great Lakes grouse hunting is here to stay for a couple months at least. And I hope you are excited as I am. So with that in mind, we've got our very much annual conversation with Ann Jandernow of Northwind Enterprises, Scout and Hunt Mapping. And we are glad to have her on the Birdshot Podcast once again. Put out a request for listener questions. We got a bunch of them. Some great questions. Thank you to everybody that submitted questions for this episode of the podcast. We covered most of them. There were a few that had some overlap and we did go long. So if you feel like we missed your question or breezed over it, I apologize for that. But we did our best to cover all the important topics in each question that was submitted. Thanks to everybody that did submit those again. And for the rest of you out there, I'm certain you'll enjoy this episode, especially those of you that have been looking forward to it. Had a great time catching up with Ann and talking grouse or woodcock habitat and hunting as always. It was a long episode. We covered a lot of stuff, but it's grouse season now and things are about to get real exciting. So with that said, let's welcome into the conversation and back to the Birdshot Podcast once again, Ann Jandernaw. And welcome back to the podcast. I am, I'm going to start this in kind of a unusual way. I'm looking out my window. I've got it right outside the window of my podcast studio. I've got a mountain ash tree that, as you can imagine, is full of big clumps of orange berries right now. And I'm looking out at one of those woodpeckers that it's like a, it's, it's a flicker, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yep. You see them oh, all, yeah. along the roads, yeah. along the grouse yep. trails all the time. Yeah, those are to me, those birds always, they, they signify grouse season is near. Cause that's what I'm always seeing when we're, when we're out chasing grouse in September. And I don't know that I've ever seen one here in this mountain ash tree, but it's, uh, it's definitely fall. And <laughs> we are, we are talking to Ann Janinov once again, and thanks for joining us on the bird shop podcast. It's always a pleasure to have you. I was happy to, to talk with you. You got those flickers flying around all over. Are, are they migrating down from Canada? How much do you know about those birds? I don't know as much about them. You know, it's like sort of like the robins and that. You know, the first thing, you know, you got the flickers that seem to they all gather along the edges of the roads, and then they're yep. gone. Then all of a sudden, the robins are gone, and then then here comes the the, the snow buntings. You know, that yes. gather on the road. I remember I was at Michigan Tech going to school for forestry, and we were headed over to an area to go hunting. And we didn't have any dogs, and we were walking up. I had to keep a guy from shooting them. <laughs> <laughs> he kept thinking, he goes, there's grouse all over the place here. I said, no, no, they're woodpeckers. <laughs> so, oh my. Yeah, but, well, uh, I, I will say when I, when I, we were, I was just about to hit the record button, I looked out and 
they do, I mean, they have, they're sort of a speckled feather. They mm-hmm. have kind of a camouflage look other than those splashes of color. So they have kind of a right. game, game birdie look. And it really caught my attention when I looked out in that mountain ash tree. <laughs> you were doing a double take. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed I was. Yeah, yeah. It's not hunting season yet, but we are, we are definitely almost there. Today was, I don't know about where you're at. Today was a, is a beautiful September day. You know, it's plenty warm this point in the mm-hmm. day but this morning it was nice and cool and i mean we are after having some hot weather last week we're kind of on the cusp of things how are things in your area um we're where i'm at we're just a tad bit dry it's we've never had an overabundance of rain where i'm at and okay. it's, it was the same way last year i was not here because i had to run down to right along the ohio west virginia line and back in about three days with dog stuff and I got a call from Skip and I was talking to him and he said, you wouldn't guess what I said, what he says, we have a slight frost. I said, shoot. And I wasn't there. (laughs) 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 So that was yesterday. I think it was. Yeah. It was cool yesterday morning. Well, our, our leaves are turning. And then I've been up along the West side of the UP a week and a half ago. And there were places that the leaves were already turning. Um, so, but we're dry. So, yeah, yeah and so so that it, it's kind of multifaceted, right? They can they can right. they can turn based on being just being a little stressed with the dry conditions and then time of year. Yeah, yeah. but I guess you know if someone's thinking long term, what you can do is you can you know think about the long term effects of that. You know, you have a very good chance of by possibly gaining a week the leaves coming off mm. early. Yeah. So so you know versus a place that has a lot of moisture. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so a drier area, you would, you would anticipate the leaves perhaps coming off sooner, maybe less cover. Good for us, bad for grouse. Um, correct. And then you're <laughs> going to be hunting, you're going to be hunting right on the edges of wet areas. Sure. Sure. Yep. Okay. Okay. And that, that's a, that's a great, uh, uh, foreshadowing of one of our questions today. We've got some listeners submitted questions today, some really, really good ones. Can't wait to get into those. We're going to get into them shortly. I will say, yeah, it was, Gosh, I don't know if it was last week or maybe, I don't know, maybe within the last 10 days, I woke up one morning and there was just a like a splattering of, we've got big maple trees in our yard and there's just mm-hmm. leaves had dropped. And it was like, a, you know, you hadn't seen more than a single leaf in the yard all summer. And then all of a sudden there they were. And that's, you know, another one of those wake up calls to the time of year, as yep. if I haven't been looking for every single indication of fall. <laughs> That was another sounds, one. Sounds familiar. I mean, the summer's <laughs> been long. It's been long and hot. Yeah, yeah. Too hot this summer. So I have kind of a, a story, my backyard observation storyline of how things played out in the winter, spring, and summer so far. And, you know, however much you, you want to, however much stock you want to put into that. It's, it's my observation. I've shared it a little bit, but I'm kind of curious, what were your thoughts on the, you know, your high level analysis of winter, spring, summer leading into fall here? Okay. We went into last fall with a drought in my area, at least. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the areas were not, some of the areas were overly wet there. And then winter, we had a whole bunch of snow right away. Yeah. Anyway, like 20 to 24 inches. Then there was a massive melt-off. Really? And then, yes, we had a massive melt-off where we had just, if you went in the woods, there was probably three or four inches, and it was crusty and hard pack. So that became the base 
for the grouse going forward. Okay. Into the into January and February. Well, then we got some fluffy stuff, and then we had two different ice storms. Mm. One wasn't too bad, then fluffy stuff, and then the ice where the rain came and it it you would have thought you were having a May shower or a June shower, and it left literally a crust of ice in there close to a half inch. Mm. And then the snow came on top of that. So you know what would happen if any bird tried to dive in it. That was the end of the bird. Yeah. But it melted quick enough. But literally, when I, what you do is you cut the face of a snow bank or a snow area. You're, you're walking, you're trudging, and then you slam a shovel in, and then you dig out, and you could dig out these shelves. So you have the crusty area, then fluff, and then a light ice, not, not bad. And then you had more fluff. And then that really thick uh, shelf, anything could run on top of it. In some of the areas, I could stand on it. Mm, yeah. And uh, and then it, it melted, and things were pretty much on track for drumming season. Uh, not overly wet again. All through the summer, it's been more on the dry side. Um, you've had areas up in the northwest part of, part of Minnesota that's been extremely wet and came, you know, very wet. Um, but, uh, you know, the broods I'm seeing five to seven, somewhere in there, uh, they're, they, they were bred, you know, the breeding took place pretty much right on time. Yeah. Um, everything looks good there. I'm seeing some woodcock, uh, but it's just, you know, I can't say anything really. The ice bothered me. Yeah. You know, I didn't know what to think. How was that going to play out? I heard drumming in multiple areas. Um, I think, you know, I, I can't say that I see anything horrendous. Yeah. You know, and, and the, the good news is, is that the hazelnuts, the beak and the American hazelnuts, that, that shrub component that gets in, especially over in Minnesota. Yep. Um, they, they've got lots of nuts on them. I've heard that as well. Yep. The only thing I'm concerned about is, and this is looking in toward winter because that becomes a food source on the catkin side. I don't know how long those catkins are over yours, over your area, but my area is a little on the short side. But we did have a good red red raspberry season, you know, wild. And if you don't have a good red raspberry season, that means those catkins aren't getting the moisture they need to develop. Oh, and that's interesting. Your, that's your that's your food source for winter. So right, yeah. Um, just just little things. I mean, it's like I feel like I'm more nitpicking than anything. Sure. Yep. Yep. But. I was in swamps. I've been around swamps. I've been around logging equipment this year down in the swamps. Um, swamps weren't overly wet. They were able to go in and log areas that typically, I mean, they had the bulldozers ready with cables in case they needed to pull, you know, a ponzi out or something, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, for the overly, they did not have the tracks on, you know, uh, on the tires. They were just going in with the tires on the tracks. Yeah. So. That's that's been my area. Yeah, very cool, and that that's really all I was looking for. Not necessarily uh, forecasting the hunting season, as we all know that's that's really tricky to do. But what are those what are those observations? What kind of stands out or doesn't stand out? That kind of thing. So that, that was that was great. I don't think I've ever I don't think I've ever really thought about it, but never or never realized that those the hazel catkins are. I, I guess I've noticed them being longer or shorter, but I've never thought much about it. So. So those those catkins will will grow in length as the 
as the shrubs are more well nourished with water and stuff. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, it boils down to how many bites does it take to fill a crop? Sure. Yep. Yeah. And we've had, we had a lot of thimble berries around here. Are you familiar with that? Oh yeah. Sour as heck. <laughs> yes. Yeah. My son, <laughs> my, my four-year-old loves them. We go, we go walking the dogs on the trails of the, and he's, you know, he's picking those things and eating them the whole way. So it keeps him entertained. They look just like a raspberry to the point where right. I was, I had those kind of confused and I was, I was pointing them out at one point. My buddy's like, those are thimble berries. I'm like, well, gosh, they look just like a raspberry, but their mm-hmm. raspberry has a much smaller leaf and kind of those reddish reddish stems and stuff. Yeah, they're sort of, they're, they're definitely the ones that you really dump the sugar on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think somebody was telling me, one of my friends was, I think they were maybe over in the UP and they must have a bunch of them over there. And they were kind of saying, and they're maybe not quite as palatable as a raspberry, but the only reason they're not necessarily packaged up and sold is that as soon as you take them off, they kind of, they want to fall apart more so than a raspberry. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 They just, they don't hold their shape. I mean, the Keweenaw especially is known for for that thimbleberries up there. And I mean, it was sort of funny. Everyone goes and buys the the jam and they're in their mind. They've got raspberries and they take one bite. It's like, (laughs) Oh my word. (laughs) What did I just buy? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they've they've got they're really big, really broad leaf plant, and I see yep. them I see them along along trails and stuff. That's that's where I notice mm-hmm. them most. But mm-hmm. yeah, well, we're gonna talk food sources and that kind of stuff too. But I think we will I think we will jump into the the questions. I put a little uh, Instagram story out, and folks have it, it's been really fun. This is gosh, this I I should have looked this up, but it's it's either the fifth or sixth time we've had you on now, kind of for our annual conversation i got a number of messages from folks that said they've been impatiently waiting for for ann's reappearance (laughs) on the podcast so (laughs) oh my word yes yeah so you're a you're an anticipated and well-received guest on the podcast always in thank you yeah it's good i appreciate you having me on i look forward to it yeah, yeah, good deal. Well, we're going to jump right into it here. So, um, you, I shared these questions with you earlier today, so you had a, at least a chance to to breeze through them. But we'll have it out here on the podcast, and we'll have some fun talking grouse and woodcock stuff. So, question number one is, and we we've, we've touched on this already. This would be on people's minds. How important is water to grouse habitat? Should I focus on moving or standing water? So, I guess two questions there, but. It's, you know, you don't need a raging river, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's not so much the grouse itself, and in, in like he's saying, he's saying habitat, mm-hmm. but it it relates to your food sources. It relates to the density of the stands when they, you know, regenerate yeah. after after being harvested. In, in regular soils that are a little bit heavy, that holds the moisture longer. That moisture is important, and that what that does is a bit. Okay, let's start with you cut you cut the trees, you get the trees cut off. Okay, you, you're going in. Say maybe it's a late fall, and then the next year you need good moisture for that. You know, you need the moisture to hit so it doesn't become dry, because mm-hmm. then that'll it'll take longer for that cut instead of maybe being what you wanted at nine years old. It may take till ten years old to be what you want to start hunting because. It got held back by lack of moisture. But you get these cuts and you walk in and it looks like it's right out of a painting of what if you couldn't you couldn't put a picture better in your mind of the stem density of 
ground floor with the bunch berries, the strawberries, and all that. You know, because the cuts go through a change. You know, they're they're just a mess, and there's there's weeds and a few sprouting things all over the place. And then next thing you know, you see the young aspen shoot up, and then after that, you know, as the canopy starts to grow, you start to lose the weeds, and then eventually the weeds are gone, and you end up with this beautiful canopy that's it's like the tops interlace between each other. Mm-hmm. And when you have that type of interlacing of canopy and it's the right size and the right stem density, it is the perfect habitat for a brood to be reared. And that's what you're looking out for. And so if you have, if that, it's like growing a crop or growing your garden or whatever, you need timely rains. Um, and if you're on sandy soil, that water doesn't stay, you know, the rains it leach through. Yep. So those type of areas, sometimes they can be on sandy soil. It may take them a little bit. If the rains have been hit and missed, it'll take a little bit for them to get to the point of where, what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Maybe they mature at 11 or 12. But their window, their window of how long a lot of times those cuts will be viable can many times on sandy soil be a little bit shorter, shorter. versus the clay. Yeah, if you ever, you know, if people have a chance, go hunt near farming areas, then go hunt near the sandy areas and look at what age cut, because it's really important to focus on the age of the cut and the year of the harvest. Um, You just can't take any aspen cut. You need to get that age. So go hunt like a a 10-year-old cut in sandy soil. Then go hunt a 10-year-old cut in you know, heavier clay. Yep. Those areas that are close to farming areas a lot of times can make beautiful cuts. There's a place up around the west side of the UP that's like that. I mean, and there's some nice cuts in there. Yeah. And eventually the farming gives way to, you know, timber company lands and stuff like that, but it gets really interesting. So this is, this is my lack of knowledge on that farm and that kind of open ag land, because we do see that, we do see that in some areas up here. That Would mm-hmm. that be more... Uh, likely to be on the heavier clay soil than it would be sand. Is that what you're saying? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Unless you want to raise blueberries. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, but it's, I mean, think of the quality. Okay. If you want to grow a crop or you looking at, you know, when you go out west to hunt, you know, and you're looking yep. at the farmlands until you finally cross the river and you're in grasslands more than anything. Yep. The value of like the Red River Valley is the consistency of the soil throughout, let's say, 160 acres, you know, that quarter area. Mm-hmm. So if you have, I mean, the yield will be fantastic. It's it's just consistent. So what if you could have that in the cut? Now, can you go and just get soil data for everything? It's really difficult and yeah. it's really hard to interpretate. So you have to maybe go back a little different route to this and say, okay, where do oaks typically grow in Wisconsin, up north, you know, in grouse country, mostly, most of them are in sandier soil. Yep. And then you look at areas that have a little clay ground, you'll start seeing the farm fields or the attempt to farm. And eventually those farmlands are basically, um, you know, give way and, you know, the shrub components start to encroach on the area and it's gone to grass. Yeah. So that's an in-depth conversation on moisture. And then again, to just to just to kind of circle back to the question, how important is water to grouse habitat? Should I focus on moving or standing water? So if we take this from a hunting perspective, I think you you really nailed it early. And that is that, and to me, 
a water source, be it a a stream or a creek or a drainage or a lake or a pond or whatever it is, it is another, a term that we hear all the time and use all the time, edge. It's an edge in the forest. And again, I I like to focus on, you know, little creeks, little drainages, because those are going to be seams in the cover where the, where the habitat is generally going to change. And that's always something to focus on. But even to take it one step farther, yeah. okay, let's think of it this way. You've got that stream meandering around there. How big is your edge? Yeah. The elevation will determine it. You go out to Maine, you don't want to be up on the side of the mountain. You're down there where it, the soil comes down and it flares out, mm-hmm. and then it drops a little bit, and then down you're into the water. And, that, and so in, you're out west. You're hunting grouse a lot of times in those edges where there's a transition between the aspen and the riparian area. Yeah, yep. Uh, it's important because it's not only the density, it's the food, the quality of food. Right. If, if you're, like right now, it, we're lacking a lot of moisture. But the only place I can find bunch berries with berries on them, and I'm not chasing that because I'm thinking, oh, they're going to eat all these berries. No, it's just an indicator to me that the food source the strawberry leaves and the other little, you know, salads are nice salads. They're not dried out, but they're moist down there. And that is what they want. They want something lush, not something dried out. I mean, none of us would want to eat it. I don't know why a gross would either. (laughs) It's kind of like a rising tide floats all boat. If if you find a, you find an area that's got a bit bit more moisture, you're going to have, like you said, more green salad, more berry. You're going to have more of everything essentially. You have quality habitat. You've got quality food source. Yeah. And, that, and that food source on a good year will go, the quality will go farther up the hill. And on a bad year, that quality will, will be lower, close to the swamps. Yeah. Okay. So that kind of leads, I think the this question number two, I, do you have the questions in front of you, Anne? Yes, I'm okay. looking at it. That, right. That's like all over the place. Yeah, yeah. That's, this question number two is kind of grouse habitat for dummies, trees, plants, berries, to be looking out for i think a lot of that will will sort of be will be woven It'll, in yeah yep. and and especially when we get to i want to the uh there's a couple other ones that are kind of similar but there was one question about oh yeah progression of habitat needs from september 1st to december 31st so we'll we'll answer that one number 13 and that will weave in some of these as well but for now we'll switch to number three because this is a good is a good question based on the conversation we just had and We've answered it somewhat, but what is it about sand country that makes grouse habitat be weird, which I, I love, I love that. And that's really, I think it's, I think it's based on some of the conversations that I've had on this show over the past couple of years, as I have hunted more clay soil and sandy soil areas and really noticed the differences and began to sort of make some observations of my own. We've talked about them here on the show. So I think other people are, are thinking about that as well. Not that they weren't thinking about it before they heard it on this show, but it's been a, a topic we have broached before. Um, okay. So when I was doing a ton of guiding, yeah, I'd avoid sandy soils. You would. Yeah. Unless I had a nice year with rain Okay. because they tended to get really weedy quick. And, and like I said, that now you've probably seen it too. Go take, look for a 10 year cold, take a look at a 10 year old cut in one and versus a 10 year old cut in the other. Yep. There will be a difference. I'm looking for consistency. I'm not saying go and avoid all sandy soils. No, but when you're in a sandy soil area, look for the lower edges quicker. 
then you would probably on a, a cut that's more even sure. with a little bit heavier soil. I think I think the edge, the lowland edge of a cut is really important. Um, I think you've got to judge it by how weedy it is. Um, look up foxtail. Mm. Foxtail is a weed that gets really thick, but it's also a great weed for ticks. Oh, nice. How many times do you go into those areas and you come out and I, I hear this about Lincoln County. Oh, cripes, I hunted down there and there's ticks all over the place. Yep. You know, and I'm like, foxtail. You know, and, and, and sometimes in sandy soils, you'll get into the cut and you'll, you know, on the edge of a cut, you always are going to get uh, some weeds, you know, because it's a transitionary. Yeah. And the, the trees aren't shading out all of the weeds and all of that. And so you get into the cut and it's like, it gets better, but it, you're still getting these weed patches. Anywhere a place, you know, it's like the canopy can't grow fast enough to cover it up because those trees are having to share all the water mm. basically with the soil. And the soil says, I'm not giving it up. I'm going to take it down. Yeah. yeah. And, and the trees are saying, well, I guess we just lost that one. <laughs> you know? yep. Whereas the other ones, I mean, and, and so like even if you go to a heavier soil cut, this is where you could double back and you think about this. Look for those, um, when I find cuts that keep having the water pool in them, you know, it's like, and it's usually in areas where the glacier rocks and things like that are, and you end up with the water pooling, look for the smoother areas. Because one, it's like, how do I put it? Sometimes those are hard areas to be a brood rearing area, Mm. because if any birds are down in it, and they're born, and they have to go through it, and they're still really small because, like, remember, uh, a young grouse when it's born, it's got downy feathers. Yeah. And the barely, it's like a little tiny cotton ball, and it's the size of a man's thumb and the weight of about three nickels. And that's what these little birds are. And all of a sudden, you're going to take them through that. You just lost them. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So the consistency of the cut. Think about this. You look at it and say, moisture, food, cover. Are they going to drown? Will they be safe? Can you get a brood out of this area? And those are just some of the things to, to think about. Now, you get a whole bunch of rain on a sandy area, you know, they'll make it. They'll make it. And you hit that window. You, you'll get to that window of opportunity on a sandy cut that they can get really nice, too. Yep. Really nice. I'm not against them, you know. Right. I'm just saying you got you got to analyze them. Yeah. I don't know. Did that answer it? <laughs> yeah, well, I think I mean I think it I think it at least added to the conversation because definitely where I've been with it is and I've told this many times, but I I kind of when I first started hunting the sand country, it was totally foreign to me and I kind of looked at it and mm-hmm. was like, gosh, I need I can see that's an aspen tree, but something about this area doesn't seem right. <laughs> you know, and I I wasn't even paying attention that my boots were kicking around sand. But now I'm now I'm looking at that and it it is interesting. But I I tend to have that kind of it's sort of like lining up with what you're saying. I just I don't have as much confidence, and I have if I'm going into a sandy cover, my the chances of me going in there and like it seems like you can totally strike out in a sand cover. Like you just go in there mm-hmm. and I'm in, As- mm-hmm. I'm in Aspen for two hours and you, you know, you didn't flush a bird where that is way less likely on the heavy soil, at least from my experience and observation, that seems to kind of agree with what you're saying. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think in a sand cut, you know, you need to know what the age of age is. Sure. You need to know where your edges come together with something lower 
And I mean, and I'll tell you, the worst cuts I hate to hunt are the ones that are like up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, and left, right, left, right. And you're going around potholes and islands, and, and it's hard to work a bird that's running on you. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Sandy, age, and where is the lower side? And I'd head right to that as quick as I could and come along an edge. So all, all the Appalachian grouse hunters are shaking their heads laughing right now, Ann, right? <laughs> We're talking about smooth ground hunting. <laughs> That's okay. I live up here for a reason. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> if you, you know, if you've got, if you've got that available, available to you where you can go in and high grade and, and choose your topography, why wouldn't you, right? Well, that's just it. Yeah. I mean, it's, and they can laugh and all that and I get it. I don't blame them, but right. at least they've got an idea when they come up here, they know what they're looking for. Yeah. And and I hear from the say, them say, oh, I get lost in this stuff, and I think, Christ, I go down to your place, and I, I'm like, wow, it's over on that hill over there. So I'm like, they all look the same. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did want to ask you. You mentioned this in question one, talking about the shorter window of time that a sand cover might be viable, and I was curious, is that on the front end or or how is that playing out in your is it i i get that less moisture available so it's taking longer for the trees to get to that window then do they kind of what happens on the back end of that when they after they're viable they they start thinning quicker quicker okay yeah yeah you'll you you just don't have like when i look at mapping i'm looking at 9 to 16 and I feel like a lot of times sand is closer to 10 to 14. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Unless, unless I get conifer in there and then it starts to become a little bit of a winter habitat. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's not that you aren't going to find woodcock in it. Oh, yeah. But woodcock, even that, you know, can the little buggers walk around between all the foxtail? Mm. I mean, but then you go down south of the bridge and it's really sandy down there and they've got a lot of ferns. And I think. You know, those firms offer those birds the ability to run all over the place. Right, yep. I mean, there's good and bad with everything. And I guess the thing the listener has to realize, we're nitpicking the heck out of this. Yes, yep. But I do think, yeah, these kind of nitpick overanalyzations, ultimately, they help. They help what you what you see out there. And, and they connect more dots for folks. And, and it's just flat out fun to talk about. But what are the – you're mentioning Fox. I want to look that up. I know I've heard you talk about it before. What are those darn little green things that are like the size of a small rock or a big pebble that I'm finding all over my setter's ears right now, Ann? I call them pickles. <laughs> <laughs> they don't, don't look. Know. They don't look like a pickle. I don't know. I just said I, I look at the dog and say you're in a pickle. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I that I get. <laughs> I mean, so I call them pickles, and I, and I know it's stupid, but that's what I've always called. And of course, I think I do that to drive a client nuts. <laughs> What's on that dog? Pickles. <laughs> and they're like, "What are you talking about?" I said, "I got you, didn't I?" <laughs> oh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> They're sitting there thinking, well, it is green, but. <laughs> yeah, it's green and it sticks all over. And it's, I mean, it's a lot better than burdock, that's for sure. And, and uh, some of the other. Are burdock, burdocks like the, those are the, are those the bigger ones that when you try to take them out of the dog's hair, they fall apart and then they drop a hundred seeds? Um, uh, um, um, what is that? Those, I've, I've got those Pickles. in my backyard here, actually. That, that sounds right. 
Yeah, spitzels. Okay. And that burdocks are more out west, and they're like a like an oblong thing that's probably an inch and a half to, to almost oh, two yeah. inches, and it's got a spiral of spine all over it. And the dogs will probably go running away from you, screaming that you're going to pull it out of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had one crawl underneath the truck. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're not getting that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right. What else on what else on sand? Uh, that's a that's a fun one. I don't know if it will come up again, but it's definitely so. Uh, you know, I was kind of thinking, and again, this goes to your talking about. You know, I thought we had quite a bit of rain. We definitely had more, obviously, more rain this year than last year. I felt like we had quite a bit of rain around here. Again, backyard observation. I'll have to dive into some of the an actual tool rather than just what I can remember. Um, and you did mm-hmm. provide you did provide some really good links, so I'll make that available in the show notes. The precipitation analysis and stuff. Uh, but I was kind of thinking in my mind because up we had a little bit more rain. I was thinking, all right, this could be the year. You know, this would be the year of the sand country. I'll go hunt it. And in theory, it should be better than it was last year because I think last year. I've talked at length about some more inconsistent bird numbers and challenging hunting that I had in Wisconsin, which is where I'm primarily getting into sand. So that maybe had something to do with it last year. I found good good bird numbers in around, well, how do I say this or not? Um, you don't need to say any <laughs> any locations, but. No, but I mean, you just, I mean, people had to certain areas and not, and you know, I'll be the first to say, and you've looked at the maps, the soil is different Mm. and it's my type of soil and there's a bunch of it there. And so it's just, the cuts are just incredible. Yeah. Um, The consistency. And I think that's, what's really interesting. It's consistency. It's like areas, there's areas over in Minnesota where the cuts are really nice, but the, the uh, hazel brush, I've never seen hazel brush look there. (laughs) I know you always talk about that. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Can on that I've got can, there there can't be too much hazel brush. Is that is, you're not saying that, are you? I got into one that I thought I wasn't going to get out. <laughs> well, I yeah, I can understand <laughs> and, and here, that. Here's the problem. I think you're taller than that. So if I'm two, I get lost really quick. You know, one of my friends said, "Anne, where are you? I'm over here. Why are you coming?" I said, "I can't get through this." really and, and i just let the dogs out i'm i'm not yet out and i said it's the it's not just a wall it's like it was so thick that i said i mean any grouse could it, they could have a smorgasbord in here yep. and no one would even know it was in there yep you know and, and, and the thing it was such a big area you couldn't you couldn't send the dog in and pop the bird up out of it because the dog, the bird, I know the bird would have run around like a chicken in there. Yep. That's fine. Yep. <laughs> That's funny. No, you guys have hazel brush. Yeah. I have nice patches that I can strategically work <laughs> and shift around it. I mean, you guys' patches are like a half acre sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it can it can be can be thick, that's for sure. But yeah, that's well, you- that's a good well yeah anything patchy and very variable is is good because yeah it, it leads to more of those edges and stuff mm-hmm. yeah okay well yeah so anyways pitch we'll, we'll listeners will will be thinking about sand country and rain and looking at rain analysis and and observing that and if you are hunting the sand perhaps 
focusing on those water sources and stuff that question number one was getting at might be of, of a little bit higher importance. So uh, number four, other than Aspen, what is your next favorite cover or in areas with less Aspen, what might you focus on? So in the higher hierarchy, that is, and I think this person was asking primarily about grouse, knowing this person, um, what are you looking for as far as cover aside from Aspen? Density. Okay. Whatever's growing, what's the density? Stem density. Stem density then becomes, becomes the key as to, I mean, the farther south you go, it becomes more of a food issue. But I'm just, I'm talking up north here. Yep. You're looking at stem density. If I'm hunting late season, it's stem density along with conifer. Yeah. You know? And it's not big conifer where, you know, you can see all the way underneath it. It's conifer that's got branches that are hanging over that you really can't see underneath there. And if a grouse was under there, it would just fade into the dark. Yeah. And unless you really saw it, you know, looked around or just saw a little bit of movement, you would never know when you'd pass it by. What about what about something like going back to where this stuff tends to pop up on the sand? What about like scrub oak, the real patchy, low scrub oak stuff? Other than being kind of a nightmare because they never freaking drop their leaves, but... <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I have not, I mean, actually, you know, when you think about it, that was where I first saw my first grouse. Really? North of, um, in the Manistee National Forest, north of Baldwin, up around the Ward Hills there. Uh, I saw my first grouse, but I was out, it was a couple, quite a few, it was a, it was a brood, and I was, it was the first time I was out squirrel hunting. Uh, I had Savage 22 with a Leopold scope. <laughs> and I, well, I never, I was so proud of that that gun I which can I tell. Know <laughs> oh yes I have not forgotten <laughs> and and I had strict instructions you're there to shoot a squirrel not anything else <laughs> <laughs> and um and then all these birds come by and I'm watching them and that and, and I just couldn't sit anymore and I stood up and then they all blew up you know and it was scrub oak uh, and and so you hunt you hunt those areas and you know, it's the same thing. It's stem density. And they'll come in, you know, and I hear people tell me, and I've never hunted those areas, but I hear people telling me about acorns. Mm-hmm. And so I can't give you a lot of information on that because I'm not in that type of an area. Yep. So it'd be wrong for me to tell someone what to do with it. Got it. I, w- I was going to ask you about acorns, mainly like what you're, when we were talking about what you're seeing this year, because I think... I've been noticing a lot of acorns, even around here, and where I'm at Duluth, we don't have a lot of oak trees, but the ones that we have are dropping lots of acorns this year, and I've heard that from other folks that are out on some of those areas. So that that mm-hmm. could be, uh, and and we know, I think, I don't know if we've ever talked about it before, but grouse will definitely, they'll eat acorns. Yeah. I don't have lots mm-hmm. of memories of pulling birds with acorns in them, but that's probably because I haven't, until the last handful of years, I haven't really hunted a lot of, a lot of oak stands. But now they are, I mean, outside of Aspen, Oaks are definitely something I'm I'm keying in on for that reason. Mhm, mhm. Well, there's other areas like if you go down south, that's that's a big part of it. It's it's mm-hmm. uh, especially Pennsylvania. There's there's beech, there's yeah. oak, there's you know the uh, the conifers, and especially like the hemlock and stuff like that. I mean, I mean, I I can't talk. I mean, I've been out in Pennsylvania and hunted areas and seen the stem density. You know of what that type of cut can do. You go into other areas, and then there's beach, and they're looking. You know, the birds are messing around with that, and and you can get like from sugar maple, you're going to get the stem density, and yeah. um, but everything's short lived. And the sugar maple, 
And one of the things that you'll notice about all these, like oak, think about oak, think about sugar maple, beech, and all that. Once it hits a certain age, you don't see any ground floor. Right. Yep. They shade everything because, out. Because, yeah, it shades everything out, and those leaves don't deteriorate as fast mm. as an aspen leaf. Yeah. Aspen leaves will deteriorate very quick. So, you know, basically maple, you know, it's really good. You know, those maple saplings, I see woodcock. Yeah. You know, in those. A lot, of, and, lot uh, of worms under that leaf litter, right? Yep, yep. And so you look at that and you scuff it back and, and it you know, looks like someone, you know, it belongs in a box with a bunch of worms in yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's interesting. Yeah, so the so the speed with which aspen leaves fall and decay on the forest floor are actually what is kind of allowing them to, to perhaps let that understory of hazel brush and other stuff come up underneath them, which makes for the, that beautiful cover we talk about all the time. Well, and the other thing, too, that's cool about it, you know, and, and I don't know, Minnesota goes nuts on hazel brush, yeah. all I could say. <laughs> um, you know, and it's a lot of it's associated with gravelly areas. Yeah. You know, but those hazel areas are corridors from a lowland area a lot of times to an upland area mm-hmm. or to an aspen area. And when a bird goes down through those areas, they're pretty well concealed. Yep. Uh, and that makes a huge difference for them. And that makes a big difference for them late season because many times that's a corridor for them. Yep. The hazel brush does seem to create lots of seams and corridors is a great way to, great way to put, they'll, they, it pops up in those places that are the transition areas. And so uh, to me, it's kind of like, I mean, hazel brushes just be, kind of become synonymous with grouse cover to me because it's, it's such a, a consistent part of a lot of the places that I end up hunting. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. and it's, it's one of those things you, you, I remember you mentioning this like right away, like in one of our first interviews that, you know, it's kind of all over the place. So it's not necessarily something that you see and you're like, Oh, get ready for a flush. But it's just a, it's a consistent part of so much of the good habitat in this part of the world that it's definitely something you want to be aware of and look at. You need to also be aware of how, where that, you know, okay. Here's a quick example. Yeah. I had this patch of hazel brush. It was big for Wisconsin terms. And I would start out the hunt on that and I would circle it. Mm. And then I'd run the dogs and everything right up the middle and flush them out. You round them up and, and flush them out. Yep. (laughs) It actually works. Um, Just knowing that they're going to kind of move around underneath there. Yep. Yep. And then send the dogs down the middle. Yeah. And then as the dogs work and going on point, don't stay even with the dogs, go out to a 45 out in front of the dogs. Mm. Cause as soon as they run out of that cover, they're going to bust up and go. Sure. Yep. It does work. Interesting. I like it. <laughs> that's a, <laughs> that's something, that's something new. And you're still bringing new stuff to the table six years in. <laughs> well, I guess I'm not too old yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can see where, how we're doing on these questions where, yeah, it's going to take us forever, but where we'll, we'll move on to the next one. Do bear and wolf populations affect grouse numbers or where the grouse are located? Any thoughts on that? This is going to be reverse psychology. In fact, I think it doesn't hurt it, but I don't like to be in it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you know, because, I mean, a bear cannot get enough of a meal from a grouse or probably run one down. Yeah. A wolf really is not going to waste their time. But if there's bears and wolves there, I can t- tell you the coyote won't be there. The foxes will be very hesitant. Hmm. I don't, the weasels, and it's weasels and bobcats and fox and coyotes and uh, martins and things like that that are really the problem. Yeah. 
So I don't see the bears and the wolves being the issue other than, you know, take care and pay heed. Right. But what I do see is judge an area not only on how it looks and how the cover looks and how birdy your dog is and how often and how the birds are acting, which means relationship to point, stop, point, stop, point, stop. And then you then the grouse just disappears and runs like heck. Then, you know, it's probably been pressured. Pay attention to if you're hunting early season, are the grouse running or are they holding? No pressure or they learned by pressure through the brood, but when they were, you know, in the brood range, mm. which could mean you have a higher concentration of predators. Gotcha. You know, that affect grouse. But also look for rabbit droppings because if you have snowshoe droppings, then you have another uh, food source. Yep. For a predator, you know, it's the pressure is divided by two. You know, you got the grouse or you got the, you know, the snowshoe hare. And that really helps a lot. So if you're seeing, if you're seeing hare, you're kind of thumbs up in your mind that, hey, there's something mm-hmm. else for the predators to meddle with here. Yeah. And they used to do in Wisconsin, they used to do hare counts. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> That's funny. But they used to do them and it was a good indicator of an area for, for grouse. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I always recall reading about when you would read about the grouse cycle, which I don't know if you and I have ever talked about that much, but there was always like some speculation that maybe had something to do with hares, hares go up and then they get targeted and then that leaves the grouse alone and the grouse go up until the grouse, there's a bunch of them and the predators, predators target them and the hare, you know, there was always speculation around that, but I don't think anything real serious, but. No, it's, it's a hard thing to read anymore. Right. Yep. Yep. Okay. Number six, we are, you already touched on this, but we'll just briefly cover it again, but how long after something is cut until it is usable by grouse? Okay, we're going to talk usable by grouse and about being an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) I think you know where I'm going with this. Um, There's a lot of people that are, I got to get some woodcock. I got to get in this cut and go find some woodcock. And they're in that five, six years old, seven year old, and the trash hasn't, you know, basically deteriorated yet. Yep. And there are times in young cuts that... It's like for a week, you might, and it's really early, early season that you might find some birds in those areas. But in that same token, you can take a dog out of commission very quickly for the rest of the season. So is a few birds worth hunting those types of areas and then not being able to finish it? We're talking impact of stick and chest. You need to think about that. But typically 9 to 16, you might get a few cuts at 8, but mostly 9 to 16 and then you have to judge the cover and when you think it's aging out and all that good stuff, you know, as far as the density and yeah. the floor. So. Yeah. Good. And just to be really clear here, I want to, so what you're, what you're referring to is the hothouse effect, right? Where you've got, yes. you've got a young cut that the stems, the aspens start shooting out of there. You know, mm-hmm. the first year you can see them, the big sucker leaves on them. And then you've got two, three, four, five years. At six or seven years, you might look at that and say it's got the stem density, but it has not created that canopy enough in the summer for the moisture to build up underneath, which is right. creating the hothouse effect, which speeds up the decay the and, rotting. And, and, yep. and rotting and deterioration of the stumps, the trees, the deadfalls, all of the trash, as you said, 
on the ground. And that's the kind of stuff that can injure a dog. So, and I I don't think that's, that's something that is, is obvious because obviously it happens over time, but eventually that hothouse effect happens and that stuff rots, decays and deteriorates. So that by the time you get to eight, nine years old, there's a lot less trash on the ground, which is exactly what you're talking about. And my area, they're perfect between nine, 10, 11. Okay. Yep. And that, and so the way you guys go and look at this, go in there and kick the stump. Yes. Okay. If you kick the stump and you just get the moss coming off of it, it isn't ready. If you kick the stump and it, and if it's aspen, especially, uh, hardwoods can take a little bit longer because mm. they're denser yep. and versus an aspen. So kick the stump. And if you get the, the, you bark out and you make a dent and it's starting to, and then once that stump gets to the point that it is totally falling apart, you are on the back end mm. of the life of that cut yeah. on that. So just go kick the stumps. Kick the stump. Awesome. That's going to be one of the show highlights, Ann. <laughs> <laughs> kick, kick the stump. <laughs> kick the stump. Well, it is. I mean, and here, it was Gordon Gillian that talked about, you know, this hothouse effect, uh-huh. but you know, you see this intensity. I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever seen mold in soybeans. Um, and that's mold is because it's so dense and it forms that canopy that it basically is a warm area with well, the, the, the aspen does the same things. And they, it's been documented that the heat holds the heat in, which is when it gets a little bit cooler, that helps those chicks. And they, if they're born, you know, say the first part of June, you uh-huh. know, some of those, yep. And so that's really beneficial versus helping thermal regulation. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And the higher, the taller it gets, then the less it holds in. Sure. So, yeah. Good stuff. Well, you know, the, the question we're going to get next year is I kicked the stump, broke my toe. Now what do I do, Ann? Take some band-aids with you, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. Let your let your wife or your significant other know where you're at. (laughs) Yeah, use that Garmin in reach. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Number seven. Based on your guiding experience, how many birds will you take from an individual cover? And kind of clarified said, I know it depends, but maybe differentiate from poor to ideal cover, small to large. What thoughts are you thinking about when it comes to taking birds out of an individual cover? Well, it's not as critical before November. I feel those birds are getting scattered all over, but you, you and I both know what it's like around, you know, it's like when everyone goes home and you and I breathe a sigh of relief. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not supposed to say that. Am I? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll cut that out. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but what happens is, okay, the hens are in the brood range and they're, they're moving in between these males, you know, and the males have, you know, you've heard me go on, rattle on about this. Yep. You know, they have eight to 10 or whatever acres. Henry hates Phil, Phil hates Bill and Bill hates Larry. <laughs> but so they got all this, and here comes the hens and they go, oh, I like your area. This is big. You can go over and visit Phil or, oh, we'll go visit Harry. And, and they get this nice big area of good cover. And these males don't, you know, basically, they have nothing to do with other males. Males do not want to deal with other males. They're very territory. Yeah. So when you have multiple flushes, I'm talking, talking about the dog goes on point and five or six birds go up. You know what? Just about all of them are going to probably be hens. You're going to have to look at it and say, are you the only person hunting this? And make your sweep of the area. 
think about the contacts that you have and that and I might only take one maybe two if I have eight nine birds yeah I mean I really want I mean I really want to see you're going to have loss think about it this way you're going to have loss over winter so if you just had six birds you have a potential that make it to the spring you have the potential if everything was perfect of having 60 chicks so how far do you want to take the area down you know that's that's my thing about late season hunting and you have to think about how hard you're pushing these birds because these birds do not carry much weight you know or fat through the season mm-hmm. you know into the winter season i mean i mean i'm not trying to tell people what to do and and this is a personal decision but when i was guiding i had to think about the future yeah and I had to think that, okay, I'm never going to be the only one in there, even though I do my best to hide my vehicle and the license plates and everything. So if I went into an area and worked it, and I only had five flushes, I was not coming back. I had, you know, at that point when you're guiding and you've got a string of four or five dogs and they're just fine-tuned like everything, you know that you've covered it. You've, you've You'll, you know an area, and you run that area almost like you're doing a football play. Because you know you know what I'm talking about. You just know, okay, I'm going to shift here. I need to shift over here. And, oh, yeah, i got to get this little area right there. Yep. And uh, and if you go in there, and all of a sudden, huh, there used to be 9 to 12 flushes here. What's happened? And you took two birds thinking that you were going to get 9 to 12. And in the end, you only had eight. And you took two, two birds out of there. You're saying to yourself, Eh, let that thing rest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you you want a future, you know, and, and it's it, it's just it's it's everyone's gonna with grouse, hope for the best, anticipate the worst. That's what their that's what their life is, you know. It, it's you hope for the best, but it's it's a rough life. Yeah, got it. That that's that's good stuff, and yeah, that kind of takes a if you know a cover that well, like you're saying, you've got that kind of knowledge and you, you know, you know what kind of birds you've been into and, and it's a bit of a guessing game. You go to do a brand new area. You don't know what you're going to find, but, but I think the person asking this question is, is ultimately getting at, yeah, if you've got an understanding and a knowledge and you're seeing, you're seeing something, what are you thinking about beyond that? And I think you laid it out very nicely there. And yeah, you start doing the math and thinking about, you know, what could potentially happen in a perfect scenario and then basically just assume you know, with the, the, your next thought that it ain't going to be perfect. You know, there's going to be some loss and there's going to be predation, like you said. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, when I saw that ISIS this winter, I thought, Oh mm-hmm. no, that bothered me. I almost did a video about it and I thought, man, that's going to be negative. Yeah. Um, you know, and I was just shocked at the shelf that was underneath the shelf of ice underneath that snow. It was, there was a lot, Yeah. but Oh, well, yeah. You know. All right, number eight, how do you go about guessing a bird's flight path on the flush? I always seem to guess wrong. <laughs> I, I don't, he's, not, he's not alone in that part. <laughs> well, wherever you hunt, you come into a cut, and I'm visualizing this head, my head in some of the areas that I've hunted. Where's my high side? Where's my low side? And typically the high side, unless you have a patch of, of conifer, you know, and how far is the distance of the flush to get for them to get in? Can they run to it and do a light flush? Or are they going to have to look like, you know, you're sending them across the county? Typically, the birds will flush toward the denser cover. Now, birds of the year that are young, 
they're clueless. And and we call that, at least I do, we call it rolling in front of us, you know, that you go and the dog goes on point, three or four get up, one goes up in the tree. They don't know. They don't know what it is to escape. And then typically three times, do this three times to these birds, and they're like, okay, we get it. Here is what's going to happen when I hear the noise. I'm going to retreat, pause, retreat, pause, and make a beeline for the tag holders. Or here's the other thing. If you're, if you're working and you're going to come near a trail, I'll let the dog work the, work the bird and it'll be angling and I sneak out to the trail mm. because once that, that bird hits that trail, you know what it's going to do? It's going to pop right on that trail and then usually fly right down the trail. Fly down it for a ways, yeah. Yeah, and then break left or right. And usually it's opposite where it was just in. Yep. You know, so those are things that, you know, think about where your trail is, think where your lowland areas and where it's dense. Dense, 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 dense. And if they run out of cover, it's a Hail Mary. Yeah. They're just going to go. Yeah. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, so I, I kind of was looking ahead because we had another question about what does escape cover look like. So I, I think you're you're essentially covering that. And to me, I... Cedar. Cedar, yeah. So, so dark, thick, dark cover kind of. Yep, thick, dark cover. Your cedars, your swamp conifers, knowing where your cedars, your swamp cover, conifer... Not so much balsam, because balsam fir is sort of like uh, a fair weather tree. It's it's the Charlie Brown Christmas tree, and it's and if you ever wonder what balsam fir is, it smells like Christmas. You know, yeah, it, it's yeah. got that Christmas Christmas smell to it. But cedar is going to be dark, and all of a sudden you just lose them in that. Yeah, uh, swamp conifers, the same thing. You don't want to go through it. And you know, black spruce is the same thing. All of that and tamarack. Yep, tamarack. Yep. Yeah, so that that yeah, and that's and that's quite obvious escape cover. But again, knowing if you've got a knowledge or look at your map, look at your satellite imagery. If you know where that is ahead of time, uh, that can be you can work that to your advantage. Um, is it spruce? It's spruce, black spruce, and balsam fir. One of them has like a conical needle, and one of them has flat. Spruce. Which is, spruce is the is the cone shaped. 
Yep, it's it, it's world. Okay, and the and the balsam is world. more flat. Charlie Brown Christmas yep. tree. Gotcha. Yep, and and you basically you'll flip the balsam fir over and look at the needles, and it'll have a white line in it. Okay. And the bark on a balsam fir will have pitch pockets in it, which supposedly a long time ago up in Canada they tried making glass out of it. Hmm. Interesting. All right, so that is escape cover. Now, going back to number nine here. Do you believe loss of habitat is the biggest obstacle we face for both species, assume grouse and woodcock, and what can be done? No, I don't believe at all that loss of habitat, at least in the in the Midwest states, is the, the big problem. Um, I think it's a problem, definitely. Pennsylvania, um, you know, the New York, southern New York, southern Vermont, New Hampshire, it's, it's having federal land where they don't harvest anything. Yeah. It's having, like, when I did my maps for the Huron Majesty National Forest, there was years I wouldn't even sell them because there wasn't enough cuts. And, you know, it's, it's basically the view with the younger generation that's coming into the Forest Service that, oh, we shouldn't cut. It's the Daniel Boone National Forest that doesn't seem to have much happening. Or, and um, it's those areas that the farther south you go, it becomes more of a national forest issue. Yeah. Versus we have logging up here. And in Maine and then like in New Hampshire, you, you don't you're losing some of that logging up in Pittsburgh area, but you're having the loggings happening between Berlin and Arrow. Um, the Northeast Kingdom, unfortunately, has lost so much habitat and forget about, you know, the Green Mountain area. They're just they don't seem to know. They know what ski resorts are, but not what, what mm. cuts are. And they just figure one size fits all for all species. The same thing with the White Mountain. And they wonder why they got the moose dying and other, other, you know, problems with ticks and everything else. Uh, everything's out of balance. So that's habitat loss being an issue in those areas that you highlighted. But is there something that you think is, is a worse problem here? Or are you just saying that we are fortunate in that we, we're not having real habitat we have, loss? We, we, have, we have a combination. And I think you know what I'm thinking. Uh, we have a combination problem. Okay, let's forget the federal land. Yeah. We know what the issue is there. Yeah. I took I took the state data for Wisconsin and I looked went back twenty five years and looked at state forget the federal <laughs> and county. And they're logging as much then as they are now. Right. So what gives? It's called it's called other things that are happening. Um you get a bad year, you have West Nile. Mm-hmm. You also have avian flu. That also can affect these birds now. You have other things that you can't. I'm not saying that West now is is rampant or anything like that. But if you look at when our numbers started changing, mm-hmm. go back and look at the CDC when West now first appeared. 99 or whatever. Yeah. And it started moving. And then we started having to. I mean, it's like it's putting a damper on things it's like you can't get back to where you were and we've got the same habitat you know there's lots of cuts there's lots of places to hunt i don't feel it's hunters i mean these birds know how to get away from you Mm -hmm. i think sometimes you know you get four or five guys all abreast and they're actually treating the grouse cover like a pheasant field and they're you know just and they keep shooting basically and with a bird, you've got... You could certainly overpressure a, a localized area. 
but the, the other thing is, and, and people will say, oh, my word, she's fussing about this. But I've watched this when I'm guiding. And I'd have to take them aside and i say, okay, this is what happens with these birds in here. Thousand one, I thought, that's it. And then you saw the leg drop. And then you swung over to the next one and you said, the leg drop. We can't get those birds. They're gone. Mm. But they're injured. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's a dead bird. And, and yeah, that's a dead bird. How much of that's happening? And I've been in woods, you know, when we had a lot more birds that we actually found dead birds. Yeah. <laughs> with broken I've, legs. Yeah, I found them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, is it, I'm not saying that that's it for, you know, but I mean, you can definitely take an area and wipe it out with three or four, five hunters of crest. Yeah. Just pushing the birds like a pheasant field. I mean, that, those, I'm sort of sad when I see that because it's, it is what it is. I mean, it's not what I'd want to do. Well, yeah. I, and I think, I mean, I guess the thing that I, I, I would personally stress there is awareness, right? Like if you're, there's a difference between somebody that is out there thinking about the future as you, as you so yep. aptly stated earlier versus somebody that is, I want to, I want to get my five today, no matter how I get them. Right. And, right. and there's a difference there and we're not going to go into all this stuff. There's a difference there between the person that says, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, hunt three different covers and maybe, maybe pull one or two out of each one. And I'm going to get my five, but I spread that around and I'm going to spread that around the right. entire season. Right. So, mm -hmm. so there's all that. And I mean, hunt grouse long enough, we will all put a pellet in a bird and kill it unknowingly. Yep. I mean, that, that's yep. going to happen too. Absolutely. So, so I know that you're not, you're not casting stones in that, in that way, but those are things that it behooves all of us to think about the impacts that we're having out there. Well, it's the future. Do you want to take your, your children and yeah. go hunt? Absolutely. You know, yep. you know, it's, it's the quality. I mean, grouse hunting and upland hunting, especially grouse and woodcock has a lot to offer the next generation. It's not about instant gratification. Mm-hmm. You know, it teaches patience. It teaches thinking. It's cunning. It's reading what's around you. Yeah. It's reading multiple things at once. It's multitasking in the woods in your head and with the dog and everything yeah. and how beautiful. And it's also being content with something and coming away. Actually, you know, you're tired, but you're refreshed mentally. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it offers all of that and more. Yeah. I mean, you're you're probably looking forward to when you can take your children hunting. Oh, I can't. It's a huge thing. Yeah, yep. And and I am I am hopeful that that will will be the case for many years to come. That's for sure. Yep. All right. I own a flushing dog. This is the question the listener asking this. I own a flushing dog. How is the best way to go about starting to hunt in the grouse woods? Anything you would do differently for flushing dogs, Ann? No. Just make sure you're in the right cover, Cover. find those cuts that are, you know, 10 to 12 years old or something like that to give you a good chance. Uh, and, um, you know, basically learn to dance through the aspen because they're all not going to come out on the trail for you. I mean, I, I you could add to probably that more than I could. I mean, it's basically, <laughs> you know what the dog's going to do. If that dog's birdie, it's going to try to pop that bird up. And, oh, well, the one thing I would tell them, too, is whenever you go and you, you come around at a 45 from the dog or whatever, you shift a little to the left or the right of the dog and whatnot, make sure that when you get ready for that dog to release it or whatever, or it does whatever it does, swing the barrel and make sure you're not going to whack a tree. Take a step back. 
Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, it's just, uh, you put the dog in the right habitat to give it a chance. Yep. The listeners will know I have very little experience hunting over flushing dogs too, so I will refrain from commenting too much. But I hear folks talk about this idea, the idea of linear cover and uh, a hazelbrush corridor comes to mind, something you mentioned. Yep. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that edge conversation can become really, really important. I mean, you better be good at identifying those edges within the cover because that's where you're going to want to put yourself. That's where you and your dogs are, are likely going to have the most success in finding those birds. So I think you, you get hyper-focused on those major edges, the, the macro edges, but also the micro edges, which is something we'll talk about in another question on the list. But I think really focusing on that, and you want to you wanna put yourself, you don't have the luxury of, of your pointing dog covering you know more ground than your mm-hmm. than your flushing dog so you really want to make sure that you're spending as much time as possible in the best possible habitat and there's a learning curve to that which we're all trying to do really well it's just like you like you said you're looking for smaller corridors yeah. and you're going to probably spend with a flushing dog you're going to spend more time on that edge mm-hmm. than you are letting that thing cast way out like a you know a pointer yep okay maybe a short one here but what are some good plant resources for identification i've got i've got something i've been using but you got anything here in well i just i gave that list of books okay yep and and those books you know edminster bump those different books there have a lot of information in the back of them i mean one book is almost two and a half inches across that bump book is gigantic i know that yeah yeah it is and then that wildlife series book is really good okay uh and gordon gillian's book as always is fantastic yeah you know the rough grouse so i I put a listing there you know because that's going to talk about food sources for these birds yep and then i think i think that this question may also be geared in this way but have you used any have you used any apps on your phone or anything for actually identifying plants in the field not really because i'm i'm big on I think it, it's important to people that are outside of the area. I'm usually doing the um, stem density thing. Yeah. I mean, think about what most of us hunt. You know, it's aspen, 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 aspen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's like right now you'll see that they're messing around with some of the mushrooms. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're going to, you know, they're starting to mess with some of the aspen leaves right now. You know, for me, it's always been density but farther south and out east that food source becomes more more important you know the grapes and where they're at and you know when the grapes come down and all that yeah there's so much more detail yeah that's a that's a good point and and i i would i would agree in that largely over the years i got by just not knowing how to i couldn't tell you what i was looking at but i could tell you it was grousey And, and really i was looking at stem density and the mm-hmm. structural diversity of the cover. And, you know, I, here I was looking at the same species over and over again, and I knew it held grouse. And that's all, that's really all I needed to know for practical purposes. Mm-hmm. But I have, I have found just as my interest level has grown. And, and now that we have this available to us, I have used a, an application. Um, the one that, that I've tried was recommended by somebody else. It's called Seek. It's an app on your phone that, you know, you hover your you hover your camera over the yep. the leaves of the plant, and it's a 
I mean, surprisingly, it, it's well. I've, I tested it. You know, you tested on a few things. You kind of have to get your confidence up with it. But you tested on a few things that you know what it is. And once right. that works, you're like, holy cow, this thing can actually work. And so I found that just as almost like a fun thing. And I actually will. I might use it a little bit when I go out when I go out to North Dakota this year, just because there I'm less familiar with with some of the plants and identifying that stuff. But that's something that we have available to us now. And um, yeah, if you, I I don't know if you could pull a maybe you know you probably could pull a pull a leaf or a something out of a grouse's crop and and hold it over this thing and maybe you could identify what that is so that's an option that's available to people yeah Mm -hmm. sure okay 12 so this this kind of uh somewhat related to one of our previous ones what a what percent of the time do you spend in the middle of an aspen cut compared to the edges or surrounding area depending on the size of the cut Hmm. I'll look at the cut first and see if there's any changes in the middle or any places that has a draw or a lowland area where, you know, it might change to hazel brush or something like that, or like a swamp in the middle. Yeah. Because then that produces another edge. And also the bird, the birds, you know, usually if it's lowland, a little bit of a dip, birds will go toward that and then you can circle it. But if I, I typically am on the edges more than anything, and I take note of where the dogs are getting are pointing. Mm-hmm. And when they start out the hunt, I would ask tell the client, I got to find out what elevation these birds are at right now. And what I meant by that is, are they close to the conifer or have they moved up? Where is the dogs getting that first double back where they hit scent? And then I know where to sort of set myself up and we're going to go through there. Hmm. Or... If I think that they're going to try to escape, if I had two guys, I'd put one down low, just a tad bit ahead, which would force the birds up a little bit, so they couldn't just escape. It was like it would they could it was like putting just a tad bit of a blocker up there. Yep. And um, you know, I always hung with the dogs, and then I'd have the clients on either side, and they, my goal was to sort of be able to. If we said, okay, we've got some pines up here, up ahead, don't go right near those pines. Go out a little bit and around, because I said, if we're going to hold a bird up, it's going to go right in there. Whereas you walk right next to it, you just push that, and it's a narrow band, you're going to push the birds either straight ahead of you, and they're going to fly out ahead, because they ran out of cover. You want the bird, what you're trying to do is give the bird a place to go, and then let it sit and feel comfortable. <laughs> before you know you put any pressure on right and and then at that point you know i would hold the back door with the dogs and and uh have a client on either side where they could literally see each other but weren't real close to those pines and wait and then release the dog to go up the middle yeah so each each client had a side and each client could see each other across the front so we had everything and rarely did a bird ever come back they all went boom out the end yeah Every, everyone was having fun. But I don't spend that much time in the center of the cuts because these birds are more of an edge bird. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you're the second person or the third person of the day going into that cut, I would circle around and go to the back of the cut and mm-hmm. work from the back toward the front because they're going to get pushed out. And if someone, let's say they were in the front, they're either going to go straight out or they're going to peel off to the sides and then try to work their way back in those aspens again. Interesting. Yep. Yep. Good stuff. And that's, that's a good example of, 
like you started off there again using we've got a lot of resources to us satellite imagery take a look at that cut and if it if you look at the cut on satellite and everything looks kind of the same you're going to be more likely to, within that cut you're going to be more likely to maybe buzz around the edge and see what you find but if you look down the middle of it and this is where topography can come in like you're saying you you can identify some swamps and drainages and stuff within that cut then you might be more likely to to suck in and and work some of those edges with inside the cut but it's stressing the importance of looking for those edges whether they're the edge of the cut or the edge of the riparian corridor all that stuff that we have talked about many many times here mm-hmm. all right can you talk about the progression of habitat needs from september 1st to december 31st beyond kind of what we've gone over already <laughs> that's a freaking loaded question yeah, no oh my word how, how long did we have to sit here <laughs> so i want to know i want to know each day of the season where can i go find birds and <laughs> well come to the facebook page with me <laughs> there you go <laughs> and that you know because i'm planning on doing something like that maybe maybe uh, how about a september october november kind of a, you know a, a few things that come to mind you know focusing on each of those months um okay early season they're coming out of the brood range they're dumb unless they're a seasoned bird yeah the first ones to shift and to go really looking and breaking away from the brood, brood is the males the males will go and seek out the other males the adult males that's why you hear the end of september the first part of uh october you hear drumming why because the young males are putting pressure on older males. So those males that are older are usually in a, oh, anywhere from a, probably 11 to 12, 13, 14-year-old cut, somewhere in there. Because the reason why they're in that is that their habitat has to support them year-round, these older males. Junior comes in and says, hey, I like yours. The old guy says, no, you don't. There's a standoff. The older guy's bigger. Junior says, well, fine, be that way. I'm going to go set up over here. And now all of a sudden you've got multiple birds starting to set up and drum in that area. So after that, then what happens is that you've got a, the hens are moving and they're going to move into an area that will support them through the winter. That's the male habitat again. So listen for the drumming, listen for the, um, you know, any of these birds that are, if you hear a bird that's going, mm-hmm. that's typically a young one that's really insecure and it doesn't know where the heck it's going and then you've got it cornered. So look, I mean, anywhere you find a bird, look at the habitat. Yeah. So, you know, I'm hunting, I shift to pines when the weather gets bad. Yep. And I shift to lowland pines and I shift to pines that where it'll stay dry underneath. And as you start to get more and more frost, the salad disappears. And that can start, you know, and usually a lot of times the grouping of the hens will start to happen around second and third week in my area, but maybe in some other else's areas, they see it happen closer to the third to fourth week. It, every area is a little bit different, but watch for watch for your salad to disappear. Yep. When the salad disappears, then, then the birds are going to be looking more for... Um, the uh, uh, catkins, and they're going to look for the the uh, you know the buds, budding of the uh, you know, and they like the male aspen bud. It's bigger than the ha- the female aspen bud because 
aspen are both male and female. Mm-hmm. Every tree is not half asp- half male or half female. It's either a male aspen tree or it's a female aspen tree, and the male aspen buds are bigger. Now, it's not that you got to go around and slip up and say, is that, is that a male <laughs> or a female aspen? But I had one guy in the seminar said, yeah, I'm just having a terrible time finding male aspen buds. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I didn't mean it for him to go do that. <laughs> oh, I felt terrible. So he's out there straining his neck looking for male aspen yeah. <laughs> But, you know, those are things, you know, drive around in the evening at dusk and see if you see any of them up in a tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't shoot them out in a tree. That's tacky. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but, you know, you'll see them budding. And, uh, yep. you know, when that happens, you know, you know that the birds have switched over. Sure. Yeah. And, and then you, conifer becomes even more and more for, important. So uh, that was a really sketchy you know where to go because it's <laughs> it's a really loaded question because you could get really detailed or you not could. detailed enough yeah and so much of it's weather related as to what's happening with the trees the leaves the soil the moisture the heating of snow you know, yeah all of those things yeah and i mean you can kind of you can sort of pull everything back to food because the over arching principle that these birds are trying to stay fed and stay healthy utilizing the least amount of energy possible so they're going to naturally do that with whatever is available to them and i think you know you brought up a lot of stuff there hazel catkins are a big one when 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 most of the greens are gone and the salad and berries and stuff are gone that's when we start seeing lots of birds get into the hazel and then that's a great Mm -hmm. food source for them and it is everywhere but and you want to be paying attention to it but if they can get ironwood Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Ironwood's another one. Yep, that's a that's mm-hmm. a that, that's kind of it's kind of a shrubby tree, isn't it? Do they get very big? Yeah, they do. Okay. They get them big, and, and you're going to find them in the understory of hardwoods. And typically, okay. you'll find them in that transitional area from where aspen will give way to a hardwood. And a lot of foresters mark them and cut them, and it's sort of sad because I mean I know what they're trying to do, but it is a huge food source. So mm. look up ironwood and look up catkins. And if you know a place where that's sat, they like that. They like it a lot. I need to get yeah. I'm gonna I'm jotting down ironwood because that's a. I hear it all the time, but I don't think I could point one out to you in the woods. So I gotta I'm gonna make that a goal of mine this year. I'm gonna identify it with my. I'm gonna use it, my app. It's, it's like strip barks. There's strips of okay, bark okay. that come down linear, and then the catkins are typically like two together, and then they form. Uh, like a fork and then you'll see them and they're way up high and you'll see the birds budding around in that and they like yellow birch yep and sometimes i've looked up there and i'm like holy christ you're way up there my friend bailey always talks about yellow birch yeah yeah yellow birch is one and i've even seen them in maples but you know that in that particular spot that was all that was available gosh darn maple trees and i know <laughs> <laughs> I, the only the only ones i want to see are in my yard that's that's it <laughs> yeah i mean i do love maple syrup fortunate. i think we might have talked about this last year but <laughs> popcorn yeah maple syrup and popcorn oh yeah you mentioned that that's right <laughs> and and ice cream <laughs> and uh and maple syrup is good on cinnamon buns uh don't have to twist my arm hey, oh, <laughs> oatmeal <laughs> 
I, I don't I don't know if we could think of anything that maple syrup isn't good on, but well, see, I was growing up, we'd go to this one store and they had maple syrup candy. Oh, yes, and that that was good. Oh, awesome! <laughs> All right, oh, I feel like I was gonna. Oh, I, yeah, ironwood. I'm gonna I'm gonna identify that. Um, oh, the the one thing I did want to mention there on that last question is salad. You mentioned that a number of times and can't stress the importance you know if there's green leaves available to the grouse they're going to want it they're going to eat it so that the way that comes into play for me is the later in the season you get obviously Mm -hmm. green leaves become at a premium they start to disappear and they're gone but if you are Mm -hmm. if it's november or even december and there's no snow on the ground and you're looking around you're seeing those wild strawberry leaves or anything green on the ground that would be a, a good sign right Oh, yeah, and they're typically in areas that are a little more shaded with um, something that prevents the frost from hitting them. Yeah, so again, when you get out there in September, green stuff is not at a premium because it's everywhere. But as the season goes on, you'll want to pay a little bit more and more attention to anything green you see out there, unless it's a buckthorn tree like we got around here. But uh, do you have, do you see any buckthorn out in the woods there, Ann? No. Yeah, that's no. good. It is in some of the areas that I, that I bird hunt, and I... I don't know what what will come of that, but it's it's kind of it, there's a lot of stem density and a lot of structural stuff there, but it really really tends to take over and choke stuff out. It's sort of annoying. Yeah, yeah. All right. What apps resources do you use to analyze soil and rainfall in a given area, and what are you looking for? So we've touched on this a little bit, but rainfall we're going to put that precipitation link in the notes yeah yeah Mm -hmm. in the notes what are you looking for with that do you want to see a certain number of rain or are you just kind of looking at one area relative to another what's your what you're looking for there well i'm looking at the time of year okay did we go first off you need to look at are you going into the spring in a drought type situation or you did you have so much moisture that you carried over plus the runoff from winter that you're so saturated there's no place for water to go Mm. If you got that situation, you better hope it dries out a little bit before the little chicks are born. Um, so you're looking at a departure from normal. I think that's the best way to read it okay. because you don't want to just know what how much it rained. You want to know how far is it away from normal. Is it two inches over normal? Two inches over normal on sandy soil is not a big deal. Mm. Two inches on over normal on clay-heavy clay soil with already totally saturated is a big problem two inches of normal on heavy clay soil but you come into the spring still in a drought is not a big deal then sure so you got to look back to the past in order to analyze the future yeah okay and then how about on the soil side anything you know we talked about the sandy soil clay soil you can kind of see that with the naked eye is there anything you would you would look at with respect to soil from from your computer or anything there really isn't what they have for soil maps now they're they're not user friendly yeah for someone that's just wanting to look at that it's best if you look at the trees and look at the areas i mean if you see areas let's put it this way with a lot of pine plantations it's usually lighter soil yep Yep, sandy. Lighter and if you soil. see, and if you see jack pine, now jack pine just has two needles that go off at a fork. That's really light soil. That's like where anything packs a lunch to go through because it doesn't want to be there. <laughs> I love that. 
<laughs> I mean, that's kind of how I, I mean, feel when I'm walking through it. <laughs> uh, I mean, what good is it going to do if it wants? If you want that to regenerate, the only way to get those pine cones to open is to have a fire. Yeah. Yep. I mean, and even at that, why are they planting it? It doesn't make great lumber. Yeah, that's just me. Yeah, that <laughs> I, I don't know. Jeff you know, I, one thing I will say, and I, I used to hunt when I was younger. Now. I have to build in some potential error here. I used to call it jack pine, but knowing how good I am at vegetation identification, who knows? Maybe I'm pretty sure it was, but this was in heavier clay soil areas, and there would be these jack pine stands that I think were planted, and there would be clover all over, and we would we would go through okay. there, and we would see plenty of grouse running around under there in the evenings. But again, it was not a it was primarily a heavy soil clay area with a little bit of jack pine here and there, not like a big barren landscape kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, any place that you're going to hunt, you need to see diversity. Yeah. Yep. You need to be able to see a defined edge. You need to figure out what's high, what's low. And you, you have to remember those birds want to go back into dense cover, and that's typically on your lower side. Yep. All right, good stuff. What does grouse habitat look like in the Western Mountains, Montana? This person threw out as an example. I will say before you answer that I just interviewed Andy Wayman. That episode will be out for a couple of weeks when listeners hear this. So this person could definitely go back and check that out because I did ask Andy a little bit about rough grouse habitat in Idaho. So that's one. But anything else you would add to that, Ann? Riparian. Riparian. Yeah, riparian density areas where that flare back out you got meadows that come in that periodically flood but then the edge of that aspen will come down in through there moisture is a huge thing out west um lack thereof so think about the moisture okay and where you have moisture you'll get density a lot of times sure yep all right for fun what is the most grouse you flushed out of one cover on a single day do you remember? Yeah, but you guys aren't going to, you're going to think I'm making it up. <laughs> well, you've set the stage. Well, you asked the question, or whoever that person asked the and question. Some, it was a listener-submitted question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, 92 flushes of that 75 for gross. Oh, I'll my goodness. I'll probably never see it again. No, I, don't, I will never see that again. Wow. What stands out about that? Was it, was there anything in the cover the, anything out of the ordinary, other than the sheer number of birds? The birds had never seen people before. Mm. It was the type of, okay. It was the type of cover you could go into and I could break it into four different hunts. You know, Big. it was, no, it had the fingers of uh, hardwoods mm. going and then you drop down around the edge of the hardwoods and you jump into Aspen and then you jump into lowlands. It was corridors. It was hazel brush going from one place to the next. You could hunt it no matter what the season. It didn't matter if it was the beginning of the season or if it was the end of the season. These birds didn't have to go very far to live. And I did it with Jan Close. He was a client that hunted with me for about 10 years from upstate New York, doctor. He had sutters. And I remember walking into that cut and... Um, with Jan, we knew we were going to cover a lot of ground. It's tall. And uh, we hit a corner, and it's side by side, and the birds went up, and he had four. And I'm yelling, reload, reload. You know, keep, <laughs> you know I'm, I mean, I've been known to whack some guys on the back to get going, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he, you know, 
two, okay, bam, bam, both barrels, two birds went down. Then he loaded again, bam, bam, after a couple steps. You know how it is, they're staggered. Yeah. And he thought he had his limit, and I'm jumping up and down, man, with a wet hand because <laughs> <laughs> he didn't keep shooting. He goes, what's wrong? I got my limit. I said, no, you still have one more. <laughs> I said, and there it goes. <laughs> Oh man! And, and then we chased the birds all the rest of the day to get that fifth one, and <laughs> and so, and I said, okay, so we went to a different spot, and then the next day, I said, well, I've never had anyone get a limit twice two days in a row. He says, well, I think we should work on that. I said, yeah, I think so too. So I said, I'm gonna break this into different hunts, and I went and basically I ran. There was, okay, there was one area there, then there was another area there, then there was another area over here, then there was two areas there, and I basically ran like a football. <laughs> okay, we're gonna go up this side, go on that side, <laughs> and we'd kick, we'd kick the birds over to the other side, yeah. and I'd let them sit, I'd let them sit for a while, and I'd go, we'd go hunt someplace else. He says, now where? I said, well, now we can go work on those birds back there that went over there. And this was when there was a lot of birds. And he got his five, and there was a light mist coming down, and we quit early. And we both look back on this now, saying we should have just taken the shells out, which we, he took the shells out anyways, but he said we should have just walked up Kept the rest. walking, yeah. And that, but we were so relieved to have accomplished two days in a row that, and I'll never see, I don't think I'll ever see like that again it's now old and gone and sometimes i walk back there and the hazel brush isn't that great anymore mm. but that was in fact my last pointer around my was with my first bird dog named bean that was an elk and he was my first guide dog and uh i wish the camera hadn't run out of batteries but the last hunt he had was in that cut and the last time he was on point he was looking straight across at me and there was a grouse between me and him mm. and the sun and the grouse was on a pine log because he didn't know where to go and the sun was hitting that log and etching bean's face and i'm like what a picture yep. the intensity in that dog and the grouse is there and he's looking right at me and here i have a grouse standing right there and there's the dog and it was like, and I'll never forget it because after that, he, he, the bird flushed, he held, the guy missed, and, and then he walked out of that cover and he was late. And that was the last hunt he had. Wow. Uh, and, uh, but it was an incredible cover. And, and, you know, this is where I credit that dog for how much I learned about grouse because that dog, I mean, I know the woods. But watching that dog run patterns over and over and over was incredible. And seeing him drop down and come up. And, and you got to the point that, you know, we were such a good team together. And uh, he, um, he was just a, an incredible grouse dog. But, uh, you know, it was just that was that was an incredible place to hunt. And. Uh, you know, and I learned about hazelbrush there, mm. and I learned about having islands and edges, yeah. and you know, 
letting a bird rest and not go right back after it. When you say island, you mean like, say, a, a, a big stand, like a, a little clump of red pine out in the middle of an aspen cut or something like that? Or what, what are you picturing? I'm picturing, you know how the hills come down and there'll be a drainage area coming through it. Mm-hmm. And if the beaver dammed it up, it would fill up as like a little lake and those gravelly areas. So it'd come down, aspen then hazel with tag alder, and then you had the drainage area. And it was flaring so that there was actually a nice level area. So when it did flood, it had it had a long, big area that could flood. But the, the hazel brush was like islands, but there was mm. clumps of pine in some of the areas. Yep. So you would, could circle out and around. You could position a client and then push the dog in through it. And uh, you could block, and you you learn to not come right to the end of the pine. You space them out so that you wouldn't put pressure on that bird to the last bit and people would be in a position. I mean, I wouldn't even have them talk to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, we, we just sort of put a hand up or something like that. So mm-hmm. I knew when, they, you know, you know, thumb up meant they were ready to go and, and hand straight out meant we were getting in position. And then the last thing I'd say is, okay, B, go get them. And the birds would just watch. Yeah. That's unbelievable. That's that's really, really cool. Those are the kind of days you live for, right? Well, it's what you live for and it's what you remember. But it's sad when, you know, this is what, it spoils you for anything else. Sure. I mean, I love the dogs. I love the dog work and everything. But I'll never see that again. And I was just fortunate to find a spot that no one had ever been. And, you know, I learned a lot. Between that dog and the other dogs I had, I learned a ton from them. So, What was the number again? 72, did you say? 75 grouse, 75 92 grouse. total. The difference was woodcock. Yeah, yeah. And we quit early. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Now, see, if I, if I was... Uh, uh, maybe a more skilled marketer or, or just only after uh, attention, I would title this episode 75 Grouse in One Day. But I won't do that clickbaity title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, because I don't, I mean, things, I mean, people got to understand, you know, in the last 15 years, how much has changed. There are things that so much has changed in the grouse world. And it's not because more people are hunting. It's just there's, there's more things happening to the bird. Yeah. And that, that's, that's where I'll leave it, you know, because, I mean, I know it's a debatable subject. Right. But, I mean, and I don't want to sound gloom and doom either, you right. know, but do I need to have, I mean, does anyone need to have that many birds in one day? No. But it, it's it's just, you know, I look back and it was it was an incredible day. Yeah. Yeah, that's about you that's a, about the one way to kind of punctuate that and emphasize it. That is a, an incredible day, no matter what. Mm-hmm. All right, this one we're going to kind of breeze over because a lot of it's fairly general, but right. it, it mentions time of day, and I think that's a that's a good one to hit on. How do you think about time of day? I know we've talked about this before as far as feeding windows and stuff, but do you have a favorite time of day to be out? Um, do you have a time that you like to start? How do you think about time of day? Depending on how the moisture is, if your pants are too wet, you're probably too early. Yep. If your pants are half dry, they're starting to finish up eating. And if your pants are totally dry and the dog's tongue's hanging out, it's too late. <laughs> they're basically just 
they're going to watch it, as I, I said to Paul Fuller. Well, it's just like they're watching the whole parade go by, yep. you know, because they're not moving. It's hot, and we're the only ones out there. Yeah. Um, so, but with frost, you got to watch for the frost to come out, come off a little bit. So think about where the sun's hitting, and think about where the sun's going to burn the dew off, where the sun's going to burn frost off. You want to hit it when the birds are moving, not when the birds are sitting, because if the birds are moving, it's going to give your dogs a little bit uh, a heads up. Yeah. You know, so there'll be some scent moving around for them. Uh, so time of day really is look at your, you know, look at how quick this, how quick it's going to get hot. Yeah. You know, we've got these, you know, the weather, you can see when it's going to go. And when that temperature starts jump, jumping the first four to five degrees, that's about the time you, things are starting to happen. Hmm. I think it's about 830, quarter nine in the early season. Usually by nine o'clock, if it's going to hit 60, you know, 60 degrees, most of the time the grouse are night big percentage of the time the birds are already done so look at where 60 is going to come in Hmm. because i've seen at least around here between 57 and 60 everything is slowing down sure so it's that's what i would say for time of day and if it's super cold you need that sun to start warming things up because otherwise they're just they're just under the pines and they're catching those shafts that shafts of light coming under those pines and that's where they're at and you want them, they're just sort of soaking in the sun and saying, well, I'm not ready to move yet because I'm not warm enough. Or, you know, I'm just not going to get, because these birds don't have a lot of oil in their feathers, just very little. And they basically need to stay dry. And they are usually set themselves up with corridors that they can go back and forth in and stay dry. So always make note of any place that if it's starting to rain where you start to pick up some old scent where the birds have peeled into the pines because then, you know, and take a look at it. I mean, wherever you get old scent in that, I like to look to see what's around and like, okay, look at that group of pines. And then sometimes on those days when the rain's coming in, I'll swing by and see if the birds are in there. Yeah. They may be up in trees moving around and flushing and all you do is hear it, but at least, you know, sure. You know what they're, you know, you know what they're seeking. Yes. Yep. Okay. Uh, all right. How wet is too wet for woodcock habitat? Um, if you don't have little islands for those birds to be on, and I'm talking the patch of area that's maybe a foot by a foot, mm-hmm. um, they basically won't be in there. Yeah. If it's all submerged, they're not going to be in there. They like to sit on little tufts of grass and or moss, yep. uh, and they're quite content being there. But it can't be all flooded. Yep. you got to have some ground. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's, you know, I mean, immediately what jumps to my mind and, and probably you're like thinking alder, alder drainages and flats where that sometimes that oh. stuff is, has lots of, lots of open ground. And in other years mm-hmm. when it's real wet, you can, it can be hummocky and there's, there's little islands here and there, but if it's all underwater, you're going to, you're going to be on the edge anyway. I don't, I don't know too many people that are going to be, I mean, this person is asking this, it's kind of an interesting question because I would just assume you kind of you're kind of on the edge of the water on solid ground somewhere, but maybe there's somewhere that this person is thinking of that is that is prone to have lots of standing water, but uh, there's got to be something above it for those birds to sit on because they're not going to sit in the water. Right. 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 Yeah. Okay. All right. And a couple more here. Talk about finding the microhabitat within the macrohabitat. 
what are you looking for? We, we've woven some of that stuff in. We talked about how you could utilize satellite imagery to look for drainages or water features or anything like that. What else comes to mind for you, Ann? Pines. Clumps of pines. Yeah. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. You know, you have to find – you could have an aspen cut, and not all of it will be good. Mm-hmm. Yep. But you need to be able to find the good spots within that aspen. Yep. You know, there's places you're going to just pass up and there's places, you know, I had a young gentleman up here and I was working with him and, you know, I said, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to look at habitat. And so we went out and we tore around and looked at stuff and that. And he says, you're just wandering around and all of a sudden you just gravitate to something. I said, well, okay. And we, I explained the difference on this side versus the difference on that side. And he says, oh, okay. And I said, and then look down there and there's a feather, you know, and, and, You know, I hate to put it this way. I mean, people joke about it, about it with me. You know, they've been out with me. And they're like, I think there could be a feather 20 feet from you and you'd find it. You know, but <laughs> part of it is, is that when you're guiding, and sometimes you got to give a person hope, even if it is grass sure, dropping sure. to a feather. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, they are here and then something would happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they are here. It's, it's, you know, there's things that you, you need to see more than just the dog in the woods. It's like looking for the deer rubs and the scrapes and the trails and all that. Yep. You, you look for all these other little signs that just tell you that they're, they're here. And, and the thing is when in the early season, if you're in an area where there are young birds, you will find more little feathers on walks. Sure. Cause they go up and over. Instead, you know, they want to see what's on the other side because they could be a predator on that, and that's sometimes what they do. Yeah. But uh, just look for, you know, here's your sign. Yeah, and and that's and the the only thing I would add there too is that it's really a much a like I think when you're walking through the woods, it's it's a never ending search for me. Like I'm always looking for the next objective, and that is as micro or as small as where's the next deadfall. You know, it's where's the next deadfall? Where's the next patch of hazel brush? Where's I'm looking for mm-hmm. anything that's different, and I'm gonna take a few steps towards it. And I get there, and I'm I'm waiting for a flush and all that kind of stuff. And then I'm looking for the next one, and it's just like that's what I'm right. doing, like 100% of the time out there. I'm looking. I'm never just aimlessly wandering through the woods i'm always looking for something that's different if i'm looking at a wall of an aspen i want to find the one spruce tree that's hanging out here and i'm gonna go walk right. walk over to that so it's this constant filtering of looking for what stands out or what's different within the cover well, basically it's, it's it's reading the cover as yes. you go yep I mean, you have to read the cover because that's the only way that you're going to anticipate and you've got to break the cover down into patches yeah and, and, you know, okay, this is an escape area where they're going to run. This is an area where they're going to hold up. This is the area they want to escape to. And you always have to try to get in between the bird and the cover that they're seeking. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's a, it's a bit of a nuanced thing. But, the, again, that is sort of seeing, seeing the forest through the trees kind of thing. You're, you're reading the cover, as you said. Uh, all right, last one here. We made it. Uh, is, <laughs> is fire a good tool for managing young forest for grouse and woodcock not as much um as the out west birds those birds are really more dependent on it because hardwoods typically don't have the trash understory that pines do and you know what you see out west 
clear cuts are good for birds. Uh, you know, and and yes, you know, like the Andorad likes they cut that, and there's been places that they've had fires, but cut, the harvesting of timber is critical. Yeah. To having these species, having this species, and I mean, it's very evident. You know, when you look down south and the guys you talk to and they say, well, 30, 40 years ago, we used to get, you know, and then now there's no birds. It's because everything got cut and then they just would, you know, it became unacceptable to see any cutting. Fire fire is really a, it's a harder thing for, for them to use here. It, and actually a bit telling, you didn't, right. you didn't have this information, but actually this listener is a Western forest grouse hunter. So maybe that's, that's uh, leading into his question a bit. It could be, yeah. yeah it, you know, it it just depends. I mean, they need the stem density. It doesn't matter where a grouse is; it right. needs stem density. Yeah, and generally speaking, you know, f- fires used to be one of the things that would create good habitat here, and, and and grouse evolved with it around here. Now we opt for clear cutting and and silvicultural practices because they're a lot more predictable than than say fires. Mm-hmm. But to that end. If a fire does go through an area like we had here in northern Minnesota last year, or if something goes throughout west mm-hmm. where this person is hunting, definitely something you want to key in on and watch watch absolutely. what happens yeah. there in the future, right? Oh, absolutely. You're going to watch those areas, and that um, it, you're more apt to have you know fires are really take hold around here where the ground is poor or sandier and there's pines. Mm. If you get good hardwoods, it's hard to get a fire to go through it you know, versus the other areas, but, you know, it's, it's one of the ways, but it's not a prominent way here in the Midwest Yeah. or even Northeast. Excellent. Excellent stuff. And as always, that was a blast. Thanks to all the listeners out there that submitted questions. Those were, those were a lot of fun, some great questions this year. And, uh, we'll certainly look forward to next time. Anything, anything from your end and that you want to update folks on or, and, or where could they go to, to find your maps, anything new you want to mention? Um, well, we've got more releases coming out, and the maps are are uh, basically very. My focus is grouse and woodcock, yep. so we've got the ages of the habitat and and everything identified in the habitat around them. So you'll probably put the link to our website on there, and and uh, you know look up scout and hunt. And I really appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. I will do that. I will include links to that in the show notes along with some of those other resources we mentioned and Anne sent over for the listeners' benefit. And when folks are hearing this, it will be the Michigan season will already be open and the Minnesota and Wisconsin season will be about to open. And so we want to wish folks the best of luck. And thank you as always for joining us on another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. I am, even though I still got to go out and do a sharp tail hunt first, I am really excited to get into the grouse woods after talking to you, Anne. Well, I appreciate it, and thank you, and I hope you have a wonderful season and everyone else. Likewise, and thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast.
Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.